Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the falling of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is God's word to us. Hey, thank you so much for that reading. I wish I had that like on audio all the time. You just stick that in my pocket and go, can you read the Bible for me? Can you read the Bible for me? That was wonderful. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, open to the passage that was just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. And as Andrew said, this is a kind of a, a continuation, week three, in fact, of our journey through this book of 1 Corinthians. If you uh, are looking for something to read in your own personal time, uh, read with your spouse or community group, hey, read this book. Um, we're going to be here for the better part of 40 weeks, and so it, we're going to take our time with it. We believe that it's not so much that we're reading this book. You're going to find as we journey through this that this book is actually reading us. So much of what we're dealing with in our moment, this book actually interprets for us. And so uh, take this book up, mark it, uh, pray through it, ask questions of it, bring your questions to church leaders, bring your questions to community groups, and, uh, and let's be formed by it, amen? Uh, we're going to be here for a while, so let's pray. Um, let's pray as we jump in today. I want to encourage you to take a second with your head bowed there and just a, a posture of focus. 
take a second and just in the quietness of this moment, maybe the speed of the week, the speed of even today, the service to you. This is an invitation to a sacred space. Ask God to help you to hear him today. If you're here and not a Christian, ask God that his message would make sense to you today if you're up for it. If you would, please pray for me that what we talk about today would make sense and would have power and clarity by the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we've got confidence even now in this prayer and in the prayers that have just been prayed, not because we're praying them, but because we pray them in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we come in behind him. Jesus, we get to pray, and our prayers get heard because of your work for us on the cross and in your resurrection and in your pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, you've taken notice of this room, not because we're here waving our arms. You've taken notice of this room because your son has purchased it. Your son has purchased us who now pray by faith. And so would you bring power? Would you bring clarity? Would you bring the hearing of your voice in this room by the, by the presence of the Holy Spirit? We offer this prayer in the strong name of our Lord who is crucified and resurrected, Jesus the King, and all the church said, Amen. Amen. I want to start today by just sort of stating something obvious. The, the world is not as it should be. <laughs> That's not news to anybody. That's not a headline. The world is not as it should be. But it's not just the world out there. Uh, we're participants in the world. You and me. The world is not as it should be because we're not as we should be. We're not as we should be. We're, we're the ones who contribute to the world's problems. And I think most of us recognize intuitively from a young age, we probably wouldn't know it, but we just sort of recognize, yeah, that's true. There is something broken in me. There is something fractured in me. There is an experience of guilt from an early age because of a line we've crossed. And from an early age, we become these internal defense attorneys, you know, sort of making cases inside of ourselves with this internal conversation for our innocence or our dignity or our case in the world. Think back to a time maybe whenever uh, your mom put out a plate of cookies or your grandmother put out a plate of cookies that you, that you were told were to be saved for later. And she turned her back, she walked out of the room, and you thought, she's not going to know. I'm going to take one anyway. Listen, here's what we all know. Mom knows exactly how many cookies are on the plate. We know that, right? Or think about a line that was set there for you a rule that was placed there for you, and you crossed that line, you broke that rule, and you did so because in your mind, it's not that big a deal. No one's going to see. No, no one's going to have to know. In my house, we have this, um, in our kitchen, we have this island with a butcher block countertop, and we're happy for the kids to pull out the art supplies. We're happy them to pull out markers and the rest, just so long as there's paper down, right? We're not animals. We don't just mark on countertops. It's paper we do that with, Right? And so that doesn't seem like a difficult rule, but a couple of months ago we walked in and someone had gone full rage monster with green marker all over the butcher block. And so we bring in the criminal lineup, my wife and I, four kids, 11, 9, 7, 5, just stacked them up, 
tallest to shortest, who done it? It's not, it's not mom and I, like, we're not the animals, we're trying to civilize you people. <laughs> who done it? The older three look back at me, and they're like, Dad, I'm a civilized just like you. I wouldn't do something like this. We didn't even look at my five-year-old. We didn't, even, we didn't call his name out. We didn't look. He just starts holding his arms out. I did not. He has this cadence about him. I, I did not. And he's just saying this over. We didn't even say his name. He's just offering it up. I, I did not. He's holding his arms out more aggressively to sort of plead his innocence, like this posture of, I, I did not, all over his forearms and hands. Green marker. Green marker. In his mind, he's, just, he's having that internal, I'm, I'm a defense attorney, I've got to plead my case, right? I did not. He felt like he got away with something. Maybe you've had these moments where it feels like you get away with something, but it's in those moments that your conscience bears witness to something that you know is true. That you know is true. Someone did see. Someone did see. So, someone does know. I would argue a capital S, someone does know. It's not just that you know who you are. It's not just that you know what you've done. But it's that you know that someone else knows too, even if you can't quite put your finger on who that is. It's from an early age. We have this internal tick. I fear the eyes of God. I fear the eyes of God. So from a relatively young age, we know this need. I have a need for righteousness, and I know intuitively I don't have it. I have this need to be right, and I know intuitively that I'm not. And so we have this defense that we try to pull out for ourselves. I've got to have a defense for myself from the eyes of the one who sees me, even when it seems like no one else does. We need some way to explain ourselves. We need some way to prove ourselves in the world that who we are and that we matter. And we need answers, don't we, you and me? We need answers to some of the biggest questions in life. The meaning of life, the meaning of death, Judgment, mercy, identity, destiny. These are big questions. We need answers to them, and our guilt calls us out. And so here's the thing. I start this way because it's this defense that we're looking for. It's this righteousness that we're looking for. What we're doing is that we're grabbing for wisdom. Can I find something out there? Can I have an airtight philosophy? Can I have a wisdom that would give me answers to these big questions and appeal even to my conscience? And so it's in this reach for wisdom that we join the Corinthian problem today. It's in this reach for wisdom that brings us to the focus of our text. And we're picking, off right where we, we're picking up right where we left off last week when Paul's confronting this church on their pride and their disunity. And I wanna pick up with a quote from Andrew's sermon last week I think is really helpful that reads into where we jump in today, that the ways of Corinth and its view of wisdom in the world was influencing the church in its view of wisdom in the world, right? The ways of Corinth and how they saw and understood the answers to life's big questions were actually having a greater influence than God's word on the church and how the church understood answers to life's big questions. And so where Paul speaks up is in this passage is an effort to call the church back to unity, call you and me back to unity, right? You're thinking, we're not disunified. Well, plenty of families have been split up, plenty of Tables have been divided. The issue of masks is not that old. And 2020 elections aren't that long ago. In fact, the ripple effects still exist today. He's calling us back to unity, not just out there in here. And here's how he's going to do it. He's going to drive us back to the core 
of what Christians confess. He's going to take us back to the fundamentals. He's going to remind us of the core of what makes us who we are, the cross of Jesus. He's driving us back there. Pick up with me in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so Paul is sort of shouting to this church, shouting to us, for all the ways that you're divided, for all the things that are splitting you up, you've got to recognize that the world is actually already divided. And it's not because of the philosophies present in the world. It's not because of the different debates that people are having. Those things are just a byproduct of the way that the world is reeling from what they know is down there in their conscience. The world is already divided primarily because of something God has done. And there's two categories in this passage, the category of perishing and saved. And the two categories are divided because at the core is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus now hinges on what God is doing in the world. He says the message of the cross is completely nonsensical. It's folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who reject it which is why they reject it altogether. That doesn't make sense. That can't be something of God's power in the world. He says, but to those who are being saved, this message of the cross is God's love and it's God's presence. So you think about God's redemptive work. It shines most brightly at the cross, but it's always been foolish to the world, hasn't it? God's redemptive work has always been foolish. It just shines most brightly at the cross. You think big picture. Didn't it seem foolish back in Genesis? for this man to build a massive boat on faith that was going to keep him safe from God's judgment flood, not just him, but his family and even some of the created order. But didn't it seem foolish? In fact, all his neighbors thought it was foolish, but they ended up floating in those judgment waters. Didn't it seem foolish in the book of Exodus to have a stuttering mediator be the one to go before the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh, and just simply say, let my people go? Didn't that seem foolish? A stuttering mediator of all people. And the same mediator to say, we're going to get out of here and we're going to go by way of the sea. Didn't that seem foolish? Didn't it seem foolish in the book of Numbers when God brought temporal judgment on his complaining people and did so by fiery and biting serpents? And he said, the way you're going to be healed is actually to lift up a brazen serpent, the sign of your judgment, and if you look on that, you'll be healed. That seemed kind of weird. Why would I look at the sign of my judgment to be healed? Didn't it seem foolish in the book of 1 Samuel for God's anointed king to be that small shepherd boy from Bethlehem instead of his older brothers who were better looking and stronger and wiser than him? And that same shepherd boy to go out and defeat a giant who was the taunter and accuser of God's people. Didn't those things seem foolish? So of course then once again it would seem foolish to be told that the way of God's power the way of God's salvation in the world is going to come through looking on the death of that carpenter's son, born in, born in Bethlehem, from the backwoods town of Nazareth, and to look at him while he's suspended there on a wooden beam. That somehow, if you lay your life on that man, that what looks like his judgment would actually be judgment in your place for your sin. That if you submit to that man, that the the, the death he's dying on that cursed cross would actually be a death for the curses of your sin. You see, the way of God's wisdom and redemption in the world has always seemed foolish 
but it's also always been the power of God for anyone who would look on it and trust it. And God has made it this way on purpose. He's intentionally made it that it would look foolish to the world so that you'd have to look away from yourself. That you'd have to actually look outside of yourself. He carries out this thought in verse 19. He says, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, I will squeeze it, I will challenge it. And so Paul's saying, hey, this idea of God's redemption being foolish, it's nothing new. I'm pulling back from the Old Testament prophets. That God has always purposed it this way, that to know him, conventional wisdom just wouldn't get it done. He repeats the idea in 20 and 21. He says, so where is, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hey, the one who has airtight answers, would you please stand up? That's what he's suggesting. Would you please, hey, where is the one who's got all the answers? Would you please stand up? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, <laughs> the world did not know God through wisdom. So here's what Paul's doing. For this church that's divided and split in various ways by the wisdoms of its day, here's what he's saying. You guys have got to stop playing by the world's rules. You've got to stop playing by the world. You've got to stop dividing over the answers that they're offering to the biggest questions of life. Don't you see that God has already done something that's divisive, and he's done that in the cross of his own son. Everything hinges on the cross of Jesus. Church, hear this. Everything hinges on the cross of Jesus, not just in redemptive biblical history, but all of world history. Everything hinges on the cross of Jesus. And so at the core of the human problem, the reason that the cross exists is because the core of the human problem, yours and mine, is pride. That's at the core of the human problem. Augustine, an early church father out of Africa, said that pride is the mother of all sins. Pride is the mother. So here's what he means. You and me, we reject God in a variety of ways. But the reason that we do it is because at the core, we really believe that we know better. The reason that we reject God and we rebel is because at the core, we just think that, ah, this isn't that big of a deal, and, and I know better. And so pride is the mother that gives birth to every other kind of rebellion. Pride is the mother that gives birth to all of our self-salvation projects, all the ways that we feel the need to sort of prove to God, I got this, and I don't need your help. But pride is not a new problem. Pride has been an always problem. In fact, the wisdom problems of Corinth interpret our wisdom problems today. Pick up in 22. He says, for Jews demand signs. He's speaking of the wisdoms of the world. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So here's what he's driving at. Jews thought they could attach to righteousness, and they could attach to wisdom through moral religion. Through moral religion. And they did so as if to put God in their debt, and so they demanded signs. So here's what moral religion sounds like to God. Hey, we've been holding up our end of the deal, God. We've been coloring in the lines. We've been staying moral. We've given ourselves to religious practices. Now you dance for us. Right? We, we've been holding up our end of the deal, so why don't you put the political leader we want into office? You dance for us. God, we've been doing things on our side. Now you perform for us. Here's what's interesting about moral religion, and the reason it's so insidious with pride, is the pride of moral religion 
casts judgment on everyone else. The, pride, the, the problem is never with you. For the more religious person, the problem is never with you. The problem is always with someone else and with the world out there. And if they could just figure out my ways, if they could just do it my way, well then, then utopia. What's interesting about Jews demanding signs is the more you get in tune with the more religion of the Jewish order of that day, it sounds eerily similar to Oklahoma Bible Belt religion. It sounds eerily similar. It's being rebuked here. But then there was the Greeks. So the Jews demanded signs, but the Greeks, they sought wisdom. So they didn't care as much for moral religion. They wanted philosophy and intellectual superiority. And so life's biggest questions in their minds could be answered not by keeping all the rules, but by looking within. You know, they, they adhered to like Whitney Houston. There's a hero that lies within, right? Look within. Look to the reason inside of you. There's intellectual superiority that you can find that will elevate you and make you safe to the world around you. So the pride of the Greeks sounded like this. I've found my way in the world because I'm well-read, because I'm articulate, and because I'm more culturally savvy than those rule, narrow-minded people, right? So if the Greeks were the traditionalists and the conservatives, or sorry, the, the Jews, then the Greeks were the left-wing progressives. Wisdom and security are mine because I've got lots of answers and I've got lots of opinions. And what's interesting is all of that was happening, <laughs> the Jews and the Greeks, in the context of the Roman Empire that was built on political, military, and economic power. And so for Roman wisdom, it was, I'm a god to myself. Wisdom and salvation are mine, and I don't need anyone or anything. And if you want wisdom like I have it, then you'll vote for my candidate. That was Roman pride. If you want wisdom like mine, then you'll vote for my candidate. So here's just a pause, right? This is the pride structures that Paul's writing into. Don't they sound a lot like our pride structures? <laughs> Doesn't the Corinthian problem interpret ours? But here's what happens. The Son of God comes onto the scene. And he doesn't play by any of the rules of human wisdom and pride. So Jesus doesn't come on the scene and flex with power, power structures. He doesn't come onto the scene and give arguments back. Instead, here's what Jesus does. In humility, he just offers himself. He offers himself. And so this message of the cross, the cross, what the core of what Paul is telling is that the cross is the fruit of human pride insisting on its own way. If my pride is gonna live, if my wisdom and my answers are going to survive, then God has to die. Because the, the insecurity is that God's gonna confront my pride and my wisdom, and the problem isn't with my pride and my wisdom, the problem is with God. And so if my pride is gonna exist, God has to die. So the Jews said, I would rather have God dead than my moral religion not be enough. The Greeks said, I would rather have God dead than admit that I don't have it all figured out. And the Romans said, I would rather have God dead if that's what it means to hang on to my power and my wealth. Pride, for it to live, it has to have God to die. But here's what's happening at the cross. <laughs> it looks like pride is winning, but what God is doing is he's unraveling the scaffolding of human pride and wisdom through weakness 
in what looks like defeat and foolishness. Lean in with this. This is a big thought. What appeared to be a judgment on Jesus at the cross was actually a judgment on human pride. And the first person to see this, remember from our study in the book of Mark, was the Roman soldier. He's got a mallet in one hand, and he's got warm, innocent blood splattered all over his body. And yet he says there, surely this man was the son of God. In his pride, carrying out Roman structures of military and economic power, what have I done? It's in that moment he knows that this is not a judgment being carried out on Jesus. This is a judgment that exposes me and my pride, and it exposes us along with him. You see, the invitation of the cross, the reason why it seems so foolish to the world, the invitation of the cross in this world that is bigger, stronger, and faster is this. Be brought low with Jesus. Be brought low with Jesus so that you too might be raised with Jesus. The message of the cross is this. Look away from yourself and look entirely to God. The message of the cross is look away from all of your attempts. Man, I have so many of these. I have so many attempts to patchwork a righteousness together for myself and make myself appealing to the people around me and to God. And the message of the cross is look away from your patchwork righteousness. Look away from it. Look away from all your attempts to explain yourself and receive God's judgment and his assurance. This is why in 23 he says this, but we preach, so the Jews seek, seek signs and the Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block. That's a scandal to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. Christ crucified is the capital W wisdom of God in the world. See, God's not offering us a competing philosophy to match up with the debates of our age. He doesn't do that. What God offers up is a person with whom you and I have to deal with. That's what he offers up. So think about that phrase, Christ crucified. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Maybe it's familiar to you because of Oklahoma religion, but Christ crucified, it almost sounds like a contradiction of terms. If he's really the Christ, then can he be crucified? That was the scandal to the Jews. He can't be the Christ because he was crucified. He can't be the Christ because God can't die. That was the scandal to the Jews. Contradiction of terms. On the other side, since he was crucified, he can't really be the Christ. There's no way he can be a savior. He couldn't save his own skin. That was the foolishness to the world. But the upside-down power, the upside-down way of God's kingdom is that according to the wisdom of their day, Rome would last forever. The Roman Empire in their day would last forever. Not a crucified Messiah, especially a Messiah that was crucified at the hands of Rome. That can't last forever. Look how powerful Rome is. And yet, here's what's ironic. Today, Roman dominance is mere relics. But Christ is still building his church all over the world. And so, the seeming foolishness, the seeming weakness of God in his dying son what Paul is suggesting, it lays waste. It destroys the wisdom of this world. And here's why, to draw back to the beginning, because at the cross of Jesus, it's where you find the deepest questions in life answered. You think about the question of identity. 
not in a philosophy. At the cross, at the cross of Jesus, you don't have to go looking for yourself because God has come looking for you. That's what a crucified Messiah means. You're not an accident. You're not random. God has taken notice of you. Questions of love and judgment. You realize in a crucified Messiah, it's this beautiful place where judgment and mercy kiss. So that at the cross, God really sees. What, what intuitively my five-year-old knew with green marker all over him, God sees. What you and I know, God sees. And he hasn't swept stuff under a rug. At the cross, he has judged. But it's also you're fully known, but you're also fully loved. Because the judgment that was owing to you for what God has seen actually fell on the head of another. And his righteousness is now offered to you. And so when the judge forgives, you're really forgiven. You're really forgiven. Questions of life and death and destiny. In a crucified Messiah, here's what's happening. A precious life has been offered up for your life. Maybe it feels dark in your emotional, mental space today, but here's, here's what a crucified Messiah means. Your life matters to God. Your life is so precious to God that he offered up his own son for it. Your life matters to God. Your life belongs to God in the meaning and destiny you're trying to understand can actually be understood in a life of service offered back to God. This is a crucified Messiah. 25, for the foolishness of God, you see it, church. It's wiser than all the structures of wisdom that men create. And the weakness of God and its seeming defeat is actually stronger than man. And so if you're with me today, this passage keeps moving. And so there's this message of the crucified Christ, but now we've got to have the question, so what does this mean for us as a people? I get this is what it means for God's wisdom, but the message of the cross, here's the second, it actually shapes us as people of the cross. Pick up with me in 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful and not many of you are a noble birth. Here's what Paul is saying. If it was through the humility of God at the cross that you were saved, then it's in a humility that's shaped by the cross that you have to continue in the Christian life. If God was humble enough to be crucified to save you, then you should be humbled enough to be shaped by that sacrifice and carry on with one another. He says not many of you were impressive from the beginning. He sort of holds up a mirror to the Corinthian church and goes, look at yourselves. Quite an unimpressive people. He's sort of holding up a message to us, a mirror to us saying the same. Your social standing and all of your flexes of power, you have to remember, they weren't the reason that you were saved. It wasn't like, you know what, that person's amazing. God was like, I need that person on my team. That person is, a, if I can get that person on my team, then we'll win. No, 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 no. It's not your social standing that saved you. It's not your flexes of power that saved you. So he's, he's appealing to them, so then why now are they dividing you? It, it wasn't like you had a social standing that God needed, but why are you using that to divide among the church? He says, some of you, though, some of you actually were quite impressive. There was some noble birth. There was some high standing. Most of you weren't, but there was a few of you that were special. But his appeal is, but it wasn't even those things that had a bearing on whether or not you got grace. It wasn't a, notice what he says in 27. Pick up the logic here. God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. He's not talking in categories of things, but of people. So God chose what is weak, people, in the world to shame the strong. God's choosing the overlooked, the outcasted, the pushed aside. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, the nobodies, to bring to nothing things that are, the somebodies, or the somebodies who think that they're somebody. And the reason he's done that, verse 29, is so that not a single person could boast in his presence. Paul is trying to humble us in order to bring a new formation as a unified people. One of the questions that this passage provokes and answers is this. And here's where you'll feel some application today. If the message of the cross is so foolish, then how is it that any of us are saved? If the message of the cross is so foolish, and it, it's not conventional wisdom, to be clear, if the message of God's crucified son is so foolish, then how did any of us make the turn to see it as something other than foolish? How did you ever get to the other side of not seeing it as foolish, but instead wisdom? Notice what he says here. It's not because you were particularly wise or strong. You weren't saved because you were particularly good as to make God think that he, man, if I could just have that one. And it's also not because you're more predisposed to understand spiritual things and accept them more than the next person. That's not how you sort of turn the corner. Notice the language in this passage. Verse 24, but to those who are called. Verse 26, but consider your calling. Not something that you had, but something you received. Two times in verse 27, but God chose. One time in verse 28, God chose. In verse 29, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul is suggesting how did you turn the corner? Your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of any person who's ever looked to the cross of Jesus has nothing to do with you. Your salvation is entirely owing to God. God chose, God called, God called you out. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Remember how you got here. Paul's in some sense trying to help you and me understand our testimony. He's telling you your story. How are you a Christian? God helped me see. God opened my eyes. You didn't make up the message of the cross, but the message of the cross is making something of you, isn't it? You didn't lay claim on a crucified Christ, but the Father, through the work of his Son, has laid claim on you. You see, this is different. He's making an appeal to humility. This isn't something about you boast. A court, a, a, um, counter to Oklahoma Bible Belt religion, the message of Christianity is not try harder, do better, be nice. That is not Christianity. The message of Christianity is a crucified Christ, and from him, God calls, God chooses because of him. This is why if there's any boast for any Christian, it has to be God. It has to be God. I have no other reason to explain why I'm a Christian than God did it. I'm sure my track record is no different than yours. <laughs> my track record is miserable. Apart from God, I will choose every other thing than God. That's my track record. And so this is 
He becomes our boast. This is his love. It's his mercy. It's his work. It's his son. It's all of him. What other reason are you going to give for why you're a Christian except the man on the middle cross helped me to see? That's all I got. (laughs) How have I come near to God? The man on the middle cross said I could come. I got no other hope. This is why he says in verse 30, so Christ Jesus, he has become for you wisdom from God. You now go, oh, that's how I get near to God. He did it because of him. And along with him, he throws in the kitchen sink. You get righteousness, a covering. You get sanctification, a holiness. You get redemption, a new story. And so if this is true, there's no room for pride here today. There's no room for pride, especially the kind of pride that will cause you to think of yourself better than another person and divide. I know it's taken me 30 minutes to get to the bottom line of this passage, but here it is. (laughs) If God was crucified for you in weakness, then what ought that to mean for the way that you treat each other? If the one who had power to flex didn't flex, but in humility offered himself, what ought that to mean for the way that you treat each other? Especially, you see how prophetic this is in a, in a world of power grabs? The one who could have grabbed power actually didn't and was crucified by those who thought they had it. So what ought that, that to mean? There's two quick things will be done. It first means this, there's no boasting. There's no boasting. Christ crucified only sounds like a contradiction of terms. It's not. Let me tell you what is a contradiction of terms. Proud Christian. That's a contradiction of terms. You actually don't become a Christian by hanging on to your pride. Saying yes to Jesus means I don't don't have an agenda anymore. You set that. You set that. The message of weakness and folly reaches down to people like you and me who are actually weak and foolish and it makes us righteous, sanctified, and redeemed. That's the power of God. The second thing it means is this. There's no more grounds to divide. There's no more grounds to divide. Yeah, but politics. As though that's your savior. Yeah, but, you know, CDC protocols. As though that's your Lord. As though that's going to divide us. You see, here's the thing. Paul's making a contention here. You didn't call yourself, and you didn't create the church. The cross did both of those things. The cross called you, and the cross created the church, and now we will be a people shaped by the cross, united by the cross. So here's the finish. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're like, okay, I'm hearing all you're saying. It makes sense that Christians ought to be united but you're having this language of choosing and calling and how do I know if I'm chosen? Is there any chance for me to be a Christian? Maybe what I hear is that I, I can't be. A, God calls, God chooses, and I'm not a, how do I know? Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you're asking those questions. Totally fair. I would just suggest today that maybe there's a better question to ask, and it's this. Do you see the cross of Jesus as God's wisdom to cover your sin? Do you see the cross of Jesus as God's wisdom and love to cover your sin? 
Here's why I think that's a better question. Because if the answer is yes, then that's evidence of God's wooing. That's evidence of God's calling. That's evidence that God's, that's evidence. Like how else would you turn the corner? How else would you turn the corner? And you're like, well, I don't know if my answer is yes today. Hey, that's okay. No fear. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. You know a question that God has never turned down? Show yourself to me. Like that's never, that's never a question he's ever turned down. He's never like stiff-armed a person for going, I don't, I don't know if I get it. Hey, bring your questions. Church, we'll chop it up. We'll pray. And we'll trust. Here's what I do know about God. He is saving all kinds of people that we would never otherwise think would be saved. And he's still doing it. And the clock isn't done because the eastern skies haven't split. And so if you're wondering today, am I or could I be, come to the Jesus of the cross. Come to the Jesus of the cross. The last thing here, man, the message of the cross, weakness and foolish as it may be, is the power of God to call out for himself people like you and me and make us the church. We can't create for ourselves what Christ alone is for, is for us. And so you and I have a boast today. Like, we actually do have something to brag about. You and I do have something to champion. You and I do have something to sort of stand up and find our place in with heels anchored in. And I'll tell you what it is. It's Christ crucified in our place and for our sin. That's our banner. That's our boast. It's all of him that unifies a new people. You see it? Let's pray.